Today's podcast was supported by an independent educational grant from AbbVie, Astellas and Pfizer Inc., AstraZeneca, Genomic Health, Merck, and Sanofi Genzyme. Thank you. Welcome to the third episode in the series, The Evolving Role of the Urologist in Metastatic and Castration-Resistant Prostate Cancer. We want to start off today by talking to Dr. David Girard. Hello, this is Dr. David Girard. Uh, I am a professor of urology at the University of Wisconsin and an associate director in the Carbone Cancer Center there. The evolution of advanced uh, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer and castration-resistant prostate cancer is really involving urologists to a greater extent in this modern era. What began as drugs that were generally used very late in the disease are now being given earlier and earlier. Many of these drugs are able to be given by urologists, and these include abiraterone and enzalutamide, as well as two other androgen receptor signaling inhibitors, uh, darolutamide and apalutamide. Uh, the goal of this lecture is to acquaint the urologist with the use of these drugs, their application to different disease time points, as well as the side effects that could be expected uh, with their use in practice. Thank you. We now want to present you the lecture that Dr. Gerard presented at AUA 2019. So the discovery that the androgen receptor was expressed and indeed overexpressed in castration-resistant prostate cancer was really a major finding of this century. It really opened the door for the development of drugs that targeted uh, this axis. And that really led to these androgen biosynthesis inhibitors as well as androgen receptor signaling agents. There are now seven approved FDA drugs for castration-resistant prostate cancer. And a, a common theme is that these drugs began initially later in the disease. For example, abiraterone and enzalutamide initially the trials looked at symptomatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, they've been moved into the pre-chemotherapy uh, space and also into, as we talked earlier today, uh, the metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer space. The objectives of this lecture include understanding the mechanisms for castration-resistant prostate cancer. We'll focus more on ligand-dependent mechanisms. Uh, we'll talk about AR enhancement and altered steroidogenesis. We'll understand the mechanisms and side effects associated with abiraterone and enzalutamide. We'll also talk a little bit about two newer drugs, darolutamide and apalutamide. And we'll also seek to understand these new applications for these drugs. So let's begin with a case here. This is a 73-year-old with castration-resistant prostate cancer and a rising PSA. He has a history of biochemical recurrence uh, following radiation therapy for locally advanced prostate cancer, was placed on Lupron at that point. Um, he uh, has developed a rising PSA. He's been on continuous Lupron therapy uh, for the past few years. Appropriately, a testosterone was checked and found uh, to be very low at 19 nanograms per deciliter. He now has new pelvic bony metastasis noted on imaging with enlarged pelvic and retroperitoneal lymph nodes. So what are the options in this situation? So this patient uh, is one of those individuals that will likely express the androgen receptor uh, in his lymph nodes. As shown on the left there, 
the brown staining is looking at levels of androgen receptor in tumor cells from a lymph node. Uh, on the right is looking at patients at autopsy. And over 70% of metastases will express, overexpress androgen receptor uh, at autopsy. There are ligand-independent mechanisms for castration-resistant prostate cancer consisting of co-activators. We won't really focus on those today because there's not much in the way of drug approaches to that, but rather we'll focus on these ligand-dependent mechanisms. One of the first mechanisms is androgen receptor amplification. More androgen receptor present can bind lower levels of ligand. Another is that Mutation of the androgen receptor occurs very commonly in advanced prostate cancer. Uh, what this does is it allows the androgen receptor to bind uh, other ligands, and these include uh, glucocorticoid, glucocorticoids and other metabolites. A third mechanism is the fact that even in advanced disease, uh, we can see steroidogenesis in these tumor cells. And that's really arising from the adrenals. Abiraterone targets uh, blocking the adrenal androgens in this space, uh, decreasing the conversion uh, to active androgens. And then finally, we won't really talk about this today, but there are these AR variants uh, that function to bind to the DNA, which also are a mutant form of the androgen receptor. So abiraterone targets the hydrolase and lyase activity of the CYP17 enzyme. Uh, that prevents the conversion from pregnenolone to DHEA and androstenedione. Now, one would expect that the side effects would be related to mineral corticoid, and we'll talk more about that. So this drug is essentially preventing the peripheral conversion of DHT. The first trial that was done in this space was in the post-chemotherapy metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer space. And in this Cougar 301 trial, uh, there was an improvement in survival of just over three, uh, two months uh, in these patients with very advanced disease. All the other secondary endpoints, including time to PSA progression, progression-free survival, and PSA response rates, all favored the abiraterone group. This was then moved into the pre-chemotherapy space. Similarly, uh, a benefit was shown here. Uh, there was approximately an eight-month improvement uh, here in radiographic progression-free survival. Uh, this trial was the Cougar 302 trial. These drugs, uh, importantly, improve the quality of life for patients. And what we can see here is that the median time to need for opioids actually increased in those patients uh, that received abiraterone versus prednisone alone. Now, we mentioned the side effects associated with this drug. They are primarily mineral corticoid. So the blockage of this uh, CYP17 leads to an increase in aldosterone. Aldosterone uh, leads to the absorption of sodium, uh, secretion of potassium. So these patients uh, will have hypertension, fluid retention, uh, and low potassium. It can also alter uh, cortisol levels as well. That's why it's given with prednisone, again, to prevent uh, these effects. Looking at the safety data from the pre-chemotherapy trial of abiraterone, 
One can see that uh, there was an increase in fluid retention, hypokalemia, hypertension as expected. Notably, it's important for us as urologists and medical oncologists to be aware that it also alters uh, transaminases, and it's important to check uh, ALT and AST in these patients. So the side effects of abiraterone can be troublesome, and how do we minimize those? Well, taking this on an empty stomach will de decrease its absorption. Uh, it's given with prednisone uh, twice a day, uh, in some situations once, once a day. The, uh, it's important to follow electrolytes as well as liver function tests for these patients, checking them two weeks after starting, uh, monthly for the first three months, and then quarterly. And if you have a patient who does have elevation of these transaminases, uh, hold the drug until it normalizes and then restart it at a lower dose. It's important to do routine assessments for hypertension, fluid retention. Partnering with your primary care physician can help manage these issues. And it's important also that other drugs that alter uh, the CYP enzymes uh, may be altered, and their metabolism may, may be altered in this situation. We talked a little bit earlier about this new indication for abiraterone in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Uh, that was the LATITUDE trial, which demonstrated a delay in cancer progression by 18 months in those patients that received abiraterone plus ADT uh, versus ADT alone. It also reduced the risk of death by 38%. As expected, there were hypertension uh, issues seen more commonly in the treatment group as well as alterations in liver enzymes. So which patients should we target for abiraterone? It's FDA approved for men with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer before and after chemotherapy. Uh, it is being used also in the M0 castration-resistant prostate cancer space uh, by some uh, physicians now. Uh, these are the side effects, hypertension, hypokalemia, uh, it can also cause steroid-induced hyperglycemia. So we need to be careful uh, in the types of patients that we offer this, treat this treatment for. Again, individuals uh, such as brittle diabetics uh, that have uh, gastric ulcers uh, or infections will want to avoid treatment with this uh, abiraterone. And these are primarily, these side effects are primarily due to the prednisone in those patients. Uh, individuals with rapidly progressive disease, one would, may want to consider chemotherapy in that setting. Uh, also, individuals that have cardiac disease with a history of heart failure, uh, uh, persistent edema, one may want to consider other options. And then be aware, uh, individuals that have uh, alcohol abuse or other hepatic dysfunction, this drug may not be uh, indicated in those individuals. So our 73-year-old was started on abiraterone. Uh, he had a good response uh, with his PSA falling very rapidly, uh, and he also had improvement in his pain. Now, 10 months later, the PSA is rising again rapidly to 50 uh, nanograms per milliliter, and he's beginning to have more pain issues with regard to progression of his metastatic disease. This patient uh, went ahead appropriately receiving docetaxel chemotherapy uh, in this setting, and again, had an improvement in his PSA and pain. PSA decreased all the way down to eight, uh, but now it's beginning to rise again. So what are the options in this situation? Well, he had a good response to docetaxel. We could consider uh, retreating him with that. Uh, conversely, cabazitaxel, which you'll be hearing a lot about later, uh, might be another option. 
alternately, we could consider treatment uh, with an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor such as enzalutamide. And this drug was a, an orally uh, is an oral drug that was rationally designed to target AR signaling at multiple points. Uh, it uh, inhibits the binding of the androgens to the androgen receptor. It also inhibits nuclear translo translocation of the androgen receptor and furthermore also blocks uh, the association of the androgen receptor with DNA. So it's really targeting multiple points. Uh, it has a much higher affinity than bicalutamide, approximately five to seven times greater. Realize that two newer drugs that you'll be hearing about or may have already heard about include apalutamide and darolutamide. Uh, they have a similar mechanism of action but they don't quite have the CNS absorption uh, that uh, enzalutamide does. So the first trial uh, was the enzalutamide in the post-chemotherapy trial. In this AFFIRM trial, uh, again, we saw an improvement in survival in those patients uh, with a 37% reduction in the risk of death in patients taking enzalutamide. In the pre-chemotherapy space, Again, we saw an improvement in survival. We saw an improvement in radiographic progression-free survival as well. And it also extends the time for the need to initiate chemotherapy, uh, which was another time point that was looked at in these trials. Uh, you can see it's quite a profound change with regard to that. So side effects with this uh, common drug include fatigue, and this could be especially significant in older patients. Hot flushes uh, were also seen. Uh, seizures are another issue, uh, and they were seen more in the post-chemotherapy use than in the pre-chemotherapy use. Hypertension is also another common side effect, and one has to be careful in these patients that it can increase risk of falls, and this may be important in our elderly patients, the fatigue, increased risk of falls, uh, one needs to be careful applying this drug in that population. So how do we uh, minimize the side effects of enzalutamide? You can dose reduce this uh, when you're using it with, again, other uh, CYP inhibitors such as gemfibrozil. It can also uh, affect uh, serum levels of other uh, uh, CYP-inducing agents such as Coumadin, so one needs to be careful about that. Consider a dose reduction if uh, profound fatigue. Alternatively, they may want to be switched to abiraterone if that's not been utilized yet. And realize that medications such as uh, bupofrion, which is Welbutrin, uh, one needs to be careful because it can actually lower the seizure threshold uh, in, in those individuals. And dose holds can help as far as restarting uh, these drugs at a reduced dose. So which patients should we use enzalutamide for? It's FDA approved for men with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer before and after chemotherapy. Uh, it's also been approved in the M0 CRPC space. And it's, as we talked about earlier today, it's currently, uh, there's several trials that are looking at this in the metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Uh, that data is positive, uh, but again, we wait, await FDA approval in that space. Side effects include the profound fatigue, hypertension. Uh, there can be rare seizures with this, uh, as well as no other neurologic issues. So which patients might be poor candidates uh, for this approach? Again, the elderly uh, who have significant fatigue, 
also individuals with a history of seizures, strokes, or falls. Apalutamide uh, has a similar me mechanism of action, and that's been approved in the M0 uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer space. Uh, has a similar mechanism, uh, a similar spectrum of side effects, perhaps fewer centrally uh, associated side effects, uh, but it, there is, was uh, uh, some increased hypothyroidism that was somewhat unique uh, to that drug. Darolutamide uh, currently, uh, again, has a similar mechanism of action, uh, less penetration of the blood-brain barrier. Uh, again, we're awaiting more uh, widespread application as far as side effects uh, from that drug. So which agent should go first in advanced disease? Apalutamide, enzalutamide. Uh, there's minimal data to really guide us in this situation. Again, the toxicities can play a role. Uh, ap uh, again, abiraterone, hepatic dysfunction, fluid excess, hyperglycemia. With enzalutamide, uh, these patients uh, have an increased risk of seizure and advanced cancers. Uh, and again, these older patients with that are elderly with fatigue. There are unique situations, though, when one may want to consider other drugs. For example, with visceral disease or very rapidly progressive prostate cancer, it's important to think about going straight to chemotherapy. With neuroendocrine variants, uh, one can think about atopocytes as platinum, and we'll be hearing more about those in some of the lectures uh, coming up. And these drugs can be quite expensive, although abiraterone is now generic. Uh, it is still, however, expensive. So take-home points. Enzalutamide is an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor. Uh, it's used for castration-resistant prostate cancer pre- and post-chemo, and also for uh, metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. It's contraindication, uh, contraindicated in men with a seizure hi history and we talked about the fatigue, hypertension, and seizure risk. Again, it's preferred in patients who may not be able to tolerate the systemic steroids that are required with abiraterone, uh, the individuals with brittle diabetics, gastric ulcer disease. On the other hand, abiraterone is an androgen synthesis inhibitor, CYP17 inhibitor, uh, and it is uh, approved in pre- and post-chemotherapy space. It's also been approved in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer in conjunction with androgen deprivation therapy. Again, it, it's given with prednisone. Side effects include hypertension, hypokalemia, fatigue, and steroid-induced hyperglycemia. This might be preferred in patients with a seizure history, severe baseline fatigue, uh, or on Coumadin. And again, elderly patients may do better on abiraterone just because of the fatigue and some of the other issues. The important takeaway from this lecture is that these are all drugs that urologists should be familiar with and even consider instituting in their own practice. It's important to realize that the role of the urologist in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer has changed, as well as in the involvement of castration-resistant prostate cancer. Our next speaker today will be Dr. Stephen Borgian. He will be discussing his talk from AUA 2019 of radionuclide therapy and bone health. Yeah, so this talk is going to cover the issues of both bone health and radionucleotide pharmaceutical treatment for patients with advanced prostate cancer.
Well, thanks again to Dr. Cookson and Dr. Gerard here for the invitation. And um, as was mentioned, what I'm going to cover in this talk are really two topics relevant to advanced and uh, metastatic prostate cancer, that of bone health and that of radius, uh, pharmaceutical therapy. As I mentioned earlier, this is my disclosure with Fering. In terms of learning objectives for this talk, we're going to discuss the specific AUA guideline practice recommendations. We'll talk about how to practically integrate bone health management into patient-specific care plans. We'll talk about managing the potential side effects of therapeutics for reducing skeletal-related events. Then identify the appropriate candidates for radionucleotide therapy in patients with symptomatic metastatic CRPC. So I'm really going to divide this talk into two talks, which is the first is going to cover the issue about bone health in prostate cancer, and the second part of the talk will be radionucleotide therapies. So what's the clinical relevance of bone health in prostate cancer? In terms of bone health in prostate cancer, we need to be thinking about two things. One, the issue of bone loss. Two, the issue of bone metastasis. With regard to bone loss, why is that relevant? It's relevant because the age of patients who develop CRPC is the population that is at risk for physiologic or age-related decline in bone mineral density. We accelerate that, as we are aware, with the use of androgen deprivation therapy, which has been well established now to have an increased risk of osteopenia, osteoporosis, and fractures. And on the second, we have the issue of bone metastasis because the bone is a frequent site of metastatic disease in patients with advanced prostate cancer. So what about the issue of bone loss? Some risk factors that I think are important to be aware of as you are taking the history in these patients, older age, personal previous history of fracture, parental history of hip fracture, low body weight, and then alcohol and cigarette use. Some additional relevant risk factors for our prostate cancer population LHRH or GNRH suppression, glucocorticoid use, radiation therapy, and then often common medications that we don't think about like proton pump inhibitor therapy. These are data from SEER Medicare that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine that really quantify for us the association between androgen deprivation therapy use and an increased fracture risk and also show us the dose dependence of this relationship. They're followed by data like these, which show that the relevance of this is that patients with prostate cancer on androgen deprivation therapy who develop a fracture have a significantly shorter overall survival than patients who don't have a subsequent fracture develop. Now, how do we assess patients for the issue of bone loss? So this is stepping away just for a second from CRPC and really just talking about advanced prostate cancer management when you are initiating androgen deprivation therapy. A reasonable baseline assessment is blood work with calcium, creatinine, and vitamin D, and then a baseline bone density, or what's known as DEXA scan, which can help us to quantitate the patient's presence and risk of osteopenia and osteoporosis, and a general recommendation is that this test be done at a baseline and repeated at somewhere between one and two year intervals while the patient's on androgen deprivation therapy. Some general lifestyle modifications that are reasonable to talk about are smoking cessation, alcohol moderation, and regular weight-bearing exercise. What's the sequela of bone metastasis as these develop? Well, there's pain and, and, and immediate morbidity to the patient, hypercalcemia and perineoplastic syndromes, as well as the skeletal-related events such as pathologic fractures, cord compression, and then the need for surgery and radiotherapy. Back to our AUA guidelines. Where do these fit in in CRPC? The first take-home point that I want to leave you with is that the guidelines tell us that for patients diagnosed with CRPC, clinicians should offer supplemental calcium and vitamin D. 
Now let's talk about these. The AUA guidelines don't prescribe us specific dosage recommendations. When we look at the Nas National Osteoporosis Foundation recommendations, it's 1,200 milligrams daily of calcium and 800 to 1,000 units daily of vitamin D. Vitamin D data come from data such as this, which is a meta-analysis published in JAMA, demonstrating that supplementation with vitamin D was associated with a significant risk reduction both in hip and non-vertebral fractures. Some important sort of clinical practice pearls about calcium. Calcium is better absorbed when delivered in divided doses. The preparation calcium citrate tends to absorb better than calcium carbonate. Calcium supplementation alone does not prevent bone mineral density loss. This really has to be done in conjunction with vitamin D supplementation. Now, there are conflicting data about calcium and increased risks of cardiovascular disease and prostate cancer. So sometimes we'll get patients who bring us these internet stacks of searches that they've done and ask us about this. I think as with everything that we do, it has to be a risk balance. And I think in particular, it's important that we supplement calcium, as we'll talk about in a minute, when we treat patients with agents such as zoledronic acid and denosumab, which inherently risk hypocalcemia as a potential side effect. Second important take-home guideline from the AUA guidelines here is that in the setting of bone metastatic CRPC, the guidelines recommend treatment with either denosumab or zoledronic acid. So it's an important distinction. It's not that everybody with CRPC is recommended for these agents. CRPC equals calcium and vitamin D. Bone metastatic CRPC is when we start to think about these bone-modifying agents. So let's talk about each of these agents, zoledronic acid and denosumab. Zoledronic acid is in the bisphosphonate class of medications. It works by inhibiting bone resorption. In this setting, it is given once every four weeks. It's an IV infusion, and in fact, it's the only bisphosphonate in class shown to have a benefit for decreasing skeletal-related events for metastatic CRPC. Some important toxicities to be aware of, both in terms of clinical practice and because these occasionally appear on multiple-choice tests. Osteonecrosis of the jaw. What's the recommendation? We should get a dental exam at baseline, and we'll talk further about that in a minute. Hypocalcemia, as I mentioned, calcium should be assessed at baseline before starting therapy and then levels monitored during therapy. Nephrotoxicity, so this drug has to be dose-adjusted for creatinine clearance impairment, and patients can get an acute phase reaction flu-like symptoms. This is what that looks like, fever, myalgias, arthralgias. It occurs in about 15% of patients who are treated with zoledronic acid. It's most common in the first treatment, lasts about 24 hours, and can be, in most all cases, managed conservatively. These are some dosing adjustment guidelines for you that are available uh, as a slide here and in, in the materials that are available online, just basically stratifying how you would dose adjust zoledronic acid for patients with a creatinine clearance, as you can see here, that 50 to 60, 40, and then uh, below that as well. So the concept is be thinking about renal function if you are treating with zoledronic acid. What about denosumab? Denosumab's mechanism of action is as a monoclonal antibody versus the rank ligand. Uh, it inhibits osteoclast-mediated bone destruction. It's also given once every four weeks, but as opposed to zoledronic acid, which is IV, denosumab is sub-Q. Important toxicities to be aware of, osteonecrosis of the jaw, hypocalcemia, so very similar to zoledronic acid. Now, I've mentioned osteonecrosis of the jaw at several occasions. What is osteonecrosis of the jaw? It is basically a non-healing bone ulcer in the maxillofacial area in the absence of metastatic disease. Typically, these patients can go on for weeks and weeks in this setting, um, sort of six weeks after appropriate evaluation, exposed bone of the maxillofacial. What are risk factors to be aware of of osteonecrosis of the jaw? Some of these are modifiable and some of these are non-modifiable. The presence of cancer, radiation therapy, corticosteroid use, 
and treatment with bisphosphonates or denosumab. But the important thing to be aware of is that many of these potentially modifiable risk factors for osteonecrosis involve dental hygiene. Poor dental hygiene, poor fitting dentures, active dental work in a patient who is ongoing treatment. So these are things to be aware of and to av proactively avoid when you are going to be treating patients with these agents. How do we minimize the risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw? Excellent oral hygiene, limit alcohol and tobacco use, obtain a dental assessment prior to starting bone-directed therapy. We are all familiar with obtaining cardiac clearance before surgery. Here we get dental clearance before we treat with a medication. And the idea there is that if there are to be any elective dental procedures, they should be completed before a patient's start treatment. Avoid extractions, and again, make sure dentures are well-fitting. What happens if you develop osteonecrosis of the jaw in a patient that is on active treatment with denosumab or zoledronic acid? Again, it's risk-benefit, but in general, the recommendation is to stop treatment while the patient heals the osteonecrosis. Uh, most treatment here is conservative in terms of rinsing and things like that, but I think it would be wise and sensible to have an early referral to oral maxillofacial surgery because there are a cohort of these patients that are refractory to conservative measures. Now, I mentioned that the AUA guidelines include for us both denosumab and zoledronic acid. Of these options, is there a preferred one? Well, they have actually been compared head-to-head -head in a prospective randomized clinical trial that was published in Lancet. This was a 1,900-patient trial of metastatic CRPC. And as you can see from the curves here, patients treated with denosumab had a significantly longer time to first skeletal-rated event than patients treated with zoledronic acid. Um, there was no difference in overall survival, no difference in time to disease progression. When they looked at the toxicities of these two agents, hypocalcemium was significantly more common in denosumab than zoledronic acid by a factor of twofold. Osteonecrosis of the jaw, no significant difference between the agents and was relatively rare with both treatment options. When you look at the comparison of how these agents are administered, as I mentioned, zoledronic acid IV, denosumab sub-Q, Zoledronic acid has the acute phase reaction and renal toxicities. Neither has a survival benefit, and both have the rare risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw. So because of that longer time to first skeletal rated event on the prospective study, denosumab is a slight favorite as the first choice per AUA guidelines for patients being treated with bone-modifying therapies in metastatic CRPC. Again, just to put the AUA guidelines in context of other national guidelines, these are the 2019 uh, NCCN guidelines for M1-CRPC, bone anti-resorptive therapy with denosumab, category 1 preferred, or zoledronic acid in the setting of bone metastasis. Now, what about using these drugs in other disease states? And I will say this is not directly addressed by the AUA guidelines, but just to put this in context, because these are clinically relevant disease states that we all see and treat. How about castration-sensitive prostate cancer with bone mets? Zoledronic acid does not increase time to first skeletal rated event here. No significant difference on a prospective randomized trial, so not recommended. What about non-metastatic CRPC, the M0 state that we heard about this morning? No overall survival has been demonstrated, although Denosumab did increase time to bone metastasis-free survival, but without that overall survival benefit, it's not FDA-approved and therefore not recommended in this setting. So AUA guidelines use these agents in bone metastatic CRPC. 
because of the decrease in skeletal-related events. But we also, as I mentioned, have to at all times be considering the issue of bone loss. How do we quantify bone loss risk in a patient that we're about to start treatment on? There is actually a calculator that is developed online by the WHO called the FRAC score. This quantifies the patient's risk of 10-year fracture using clinical parameters as well as the DEXA scan. And the treatment is recommended for prevention of bone loss by the WHO if there is a threshold exceeded of probability of 10-year fracture. The concept here is to treat to increase bone mineral density and decrease fracture risk. Same agents with the addition of alendronate, but different dosing schedules, six months to annually, as opposed to what I showed you before in bone metastatic CRPC every four weeks. So what do I want to leave you with in conclusion about the first part of this talk on bone health? The issues of bone health are bone loss and bone metastasis. AUA guidelines tell us that CRPC patients should be offered calcium and vitamin D. Patients with bone metastatic CRPC should, in addition, be offered denosumab, which is preferred, or zoledronic acid. Beware of hypocalcemia. Beware of osteonecrosis of the jaw. Patients that you are starting on ADT for prostate cancer should have a baseline and ongoing assist, uh, assessment of fracture risk. Consider bone-modifying agents pending their online FRAC score. Now, let's move in the remaining time to talk about radiopharmaceuticals in advanced prostate cancer. And again, turning to what is the clinical relevance of bone metastasis, it's been estimated that about 90% of patients with metastatic CRPC have bone metastasis. Bone metastasis are not only associated with a significant shorter survival, but significant disability to patients, decreased quality of life, increased cost of care as well. What did we have available to us historically from a radiopharmaceutical thing? Prior to 2013, we had the agents strontium and samarium. These are IV agents that are really palliative options for symptomatic bone pain and were used as such. They were typically reserved for candidates, patients who were not candidates for other forms of therapy. They both risk bone marrow suppression as a toxicity of their treatment. Side effects of samarium are slightly more favorable. Strontium and samarium, importantly, do remain in the AUA guidelines as an option for symptomatic palliation. They are really where you see that term radionucleotide therapy. And just to highlight for you, option here, index patient 3, radionucleotide therapy, radionucleotide therapy 4, and 6 as well. So again, strontium and samarium, an option for palliation of symptomatic pain. But since 2013, we have significant advancements in this field, particularly with the advent of the agent radium-223 or alpharidin. The structure of this agent mimics calcium, and therefore it forms complexes at areas of increased bone turnover, such as metastasis. It's unique in its mechanism of activity because it is an alpha-emitting radiopharmaceutical, so it's got a very short wavelength, and because of that short range, it has minimal exposure to surrounding tissues like bone marrow, so it significantly reduces the toxicity, it has no contact precautions, and its function uh, or its mechanism of function is to induce double-stranded DNA breaks. It's given as an IV infusion. It's typically given once every four weeks for a total of six treatments. Can be done in the office. Takes about one minute to give. Excreted through the GI tract. The key toxicity to be aware of is lymphocytopenia. So it still does have some bone marrow suppression risk. So check a CBC before you give it and continue to monitor CBCs during therapy in patients being treated with radium. This is the Alsimka trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's sort of a landmark study and a very important take-home slide that I want to leave you with here. This is what led to the approval of radium-223 as an agent in this disease space. 920 patients with metastatic CRPC, bone mets, no visceral mets, 
patients in this trial could be pre- or post-docetaxel, and it was almost 50-50. They were randomized versus placebo. Primary endpoint was overall survival, so a bone-targeting agent being treated with an endpoint of overall survival. And quite interesting, what the trial demonstrated was that treatment with radium-223 was associated with a significantly prolonged overall survival. You can see the curves here, 14.9 versus 11.3 months. When they looked at other endpoints, such as time to first skeletal-related event, which you would expect, again, radium significantly better than placebo with 15.6 versus 9.8 months, highly significant p-value with a hazard ratio of 0.66. Forest plot demonstrating which subgroup of patients benefited from radium-223, and the one I want to call your attention to the most here is that whether or not patients were pre- or post-docetaxel, treatment with radium remained associated with a significant improvement in survival. And therefore, that agent is, is approved in both the pre- and post-docetaxel disease space. A variety of secondary endpoints were also analyzed in this trial. As I mentioned, time to first skeletal event, a variety of biochemical parameters. Each of these significantly favored treatment with radium over placebo. Very well tolerated, really a lower number of adverse events versus placebo, and a significantly greater number of patients in the radium treatment arm had an improvement in their quality of life versus the placebo arm. Safe, well-tolerated, and improvement in overall survival. So critical take-home slide here from the talk, when should you be using radium-223? By the AUA guidelines, it should be offered to patients with a good performance status, symptomatic bone metastasis from metastatic CRPC, no visceral disease, either pre- or post-chemotherapy. So who's not eligible? Patients with visceral metastatic disease. Expert opinion by the guidelines, we may also offer it to patients with symptomatic bone metastasis, no visceral metastasis, no prior docetaxel, and poor performance status when it is thought that that poor performance status is directly related to the symptoms of the bone metastasis. Where does that fit in the index patients from our CRPC guidelines? It's index patient three, you can see as a standard first line treatment. It's index patient five here, so index patient three, symptomatic pre-docetaxel, index patient five, good performance status, symptomatic post-docetaxel. It's also an option, as I mentioned, in index patient four, which is poor performance status pre-docetaxel, but when that poor performance status is thought to be directly due to the symptoms of the bone metastasis. Putting this again in the context of NCCN guidelines, very similarly, systemic therapy, M1 CRPC, radium for symptomatic bone mets, second-line therapy after prior ABI or ENZI, Again, radium-223, symptomatic bone mets, prior docetaxel, radium, and then at treatment progression. So you can see here very, very much paralleling the AUA CRPC guidelines. Where are we going next with radium-223? Well, there have been efforts to look at treatment selection. So we now have a host of agents, and we're going to hear more about it this afternoon, for treatment in this disease space. Uh, investigators have tried to look at what cohort of patients might most benefit from radium, and you can see they came up with a, several biochemical parameters here that have been associated with a favorable treatment response. Again, as with each of the areas in prostate cancer that we're talking about, it's possible that in the future, molecular biomarker risk stratification may assist us in guiding treatment selection. The other area of active investigation with radium is looking at combination therapies. Um, this was tested in a recently reported phase three clinical trial that was published just this year in Lancet. This trial tested abiraterone 
plus or minus radium-223. So the, com the concept was can we come at this disease using different mechanistic approaches? 800-plus patients, follow-up just short of two years. The primary endpoint was skeletal event-free survival. And unfortunately, what this trial demonstrated was that adding radium to abiraterone was not associated with an improvement in skeletal event-free survival. That you can see from the curves on the left. But unfortunately, what you can see from the table on the right is that adding radium onto abiraterone was associated with an increased risk of fracture among patients. So it did not achieve the primary endpoint, but had significant toxicities. So the current recommendation is not to use these two treatments in combination. Now, important thing to note about this trial is that only about 40% of patients on the trial were on a bone-modifying agent, which when we think back to what we left us from our AUA guidelines for bone health was not quite concordant with that. There's a variety of ongoing clinical trials studying other combination therapies, of course, checkpoint inhibitors, olaparib, um, sepulocell, docetaxel, and enzalutamide are just a few of those. So there's much more to come on where combination therapy with radium might go. So what do I want to leave you with in conclusion from the second part of the talk about radium radiopharmaceuticals? Radium-223 represents a standard management approach for patients with symptomatic bony mets from metastatic CRPC in the absence of visceral mets. They can be pre- or post-docetaxel. It's well-tolerated. It improves overall survival. Remember to follow CBCs. Where are we going in the future? Patient selection, combination therapies, and of course, as we heard about, the potential impact of novel imaging and enhanced lesion detection on where radium will fit going forward. So with that, I want to stop and thank you again here for your time and attention this afternoon. So the take-home messages from this talk in the area of bone health are that patients with CRPC should be offered calcium and vitamin D supplementation. And per the AUA guidelines, patients with bone metastatic CRPC should, in addition, be offered a bone-modifying therapy, either with denosumab, which is the preferred agent, or with zoledronic acid. So with regard to the radionucleotide pharmaceutical aspect of this talk, the take-home message is that the candidates for radium-223 therapy should be patients with bone metastatic CRPC without visceral metastasis. These patients can be either pre or post docetaxel. Patients should be of a good performance status unless it is thought that their poor performance status is directly related to the presence of symptoms from bone metastasis. <clears throat> so the areas of, of current study and ongoing investigation in this area are which patients in the metastatic CRPC are most likely to benefit from treatment with radium-223 and in what sequence that treatment should be delivered, as well as investigating the opportunities for combination therapies uh, with various agents, including radium-223 as part of the management paradigm. Thank you to both Dr. Borgian and Dr. Gerard today. Um, this is a continued part of a series on the evolving role of the urologist in metastatic and castration-resistant prostate cancer, and this podcast is available for CME at the AUA University, auau.auanet.org.